Hello and welcome to episode 83 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. It's Richard here, just providing a brief introduction to this episode, which features an interview with an old friend of the show. You may have heard him on an episode previously, Dr. Kevin Teo from Birkbeck University of London. And Kevin gave up some of his uh, very precious time to come and talk to me about workplace well-being again, but maybe from a slightly different perspective. You might find this episode particularly interesting if you've been tasked with looking after employee well-being, if you're on a senior team and you're asking yourself, how can we look after people at the moment? Or if you're considering rolling out some well-being interventions, we'd like you to pause and consider your options. We'd like you to think about what works and think about your own assumptions about what actually works when it comes to well-being. I'd like to thank Kevin a lot for giving up the time to come and join me for a conversation that I really enjoyed and uh, I always love talking with Kevin. I hope you'll enjoy it too. We'd love to hear from you. We always do. So please feel free to get in touch with your comments, your questions, or indeed your challenges to what we have to say. You can do that on Twitter at mypocketpsych. You can send us a longer message on the website, uh, worklifepsych.com slash contact or and this is new. You can join our new online community, worklifepsych.club, um, and uh, join the conversation there. We are talking about lots of different topics at the moment, but the intention is that we'll be able to have a uh, conversation that's related to each of these episodes in a more joined up fashion. And we're also going to have a monthly live meetup for those members of the community that are free and able to have a chat uh, via Zoom, although no one needs more Zoom meetings at the moment, but uh, we've had our first one and it, it went really well. So uh, come and join the community. Now you need to, and this is for technical reasons that are way beyond me, but you need to look for www.worklifepsych.club. And maybe one day uh, someone will explain to me why you need to have the dub 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 there for it to work. But anyway, would love to see you there. I have said it. It's worth uh, saying again, because I have been asked, it's a completely free community. There's no cost involved in joining. So please think about it. If you're interested in your own personal development and you like topics like this and you enjoy this podcast, well, come and join the community and meet people just like you. Anyway, this has been episode number 83, all about workplace well-being. I've been Richard and thank you very much. So Kevin, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time because I, I know you've got a lot on. Um, it, it's really good that you could find the time to join me today. How are you doing? Oh, uh, thank you for the invite, Richard. I'm always, um, always a pleasure to to join you uh, and to be in conversation with you. I, I learn a lot and I gain a lot from these experiences. Um, I'm I'm okay. I think uh, I'm I'm coping okay. Um, things have been busy, but I suspect that everyone is feeling the same way and. Um, fatigue might be catching up a little bit, but I think we can all see a glimpse of of light in the horizon, and uh, hopefully that you know we're coming towards the beginning of the end of whatever we're going through right now. 
I really hope so. We're we're recording this towards the end of February 2021, so maybe historians in the future will will refer back to this time and uh, look at our perspectives a little bit differently. Um, I, I hope so too. Yeah, and I think you know there's some there's some good-ish news on the way. So listen, Kevin, for, for those uh, listeners that didn't hear the last episode when you joined me, um, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself? What is it you do and what are your interests? Um, of course, I'm Dr. Kevin Tio. I'm a chartered psychologist. I'm a, the lecturer and, and program director for the MSc in Organizational Psychology at Birkbeck, University of London. Um, I'm also the executive officer for the European, a- European Academy for Occupational um, health psychology. So really what I would describe myself is as, a, as an occupational health psychologist. So I'm interested in how workplaces are designed, organized, and managed, and what impact that has on the health and well-being of individuals. So I almost say ironically as a psychologist, over my career, I've become less interested in working with the individual uh, employee, but much more focused on the system and environment and the team that they're embedded within. And we know that that's really important. Um, an individual focus is is interesting and can be useful, but that individual is part of a system, right? Yes, definitely. And in, in no way am I knocking or saying that focusing on the individual is is not important. Uh, that's I think you know when we talk about um, addressing workplace well being, really what we need is a comprehensive approach that targets different different levels and has different emphasis. Um, I think the danger is sometimes as a profession or as an organization or as individuals, we focus a lot on the individual um, and therefore we place a lot of the responsibility for someone's health and well-being on that particular individual when we actually know from research it's a lot more complicated than that. Absolutely. I I think that's a, a key point that would be useful to explore is that sort of divergence between what people in the workplace might view as common sense or received wisdom versus what research tells us about people's well-being and, and what works, basically. But before we get into that, maybe we could start with the, the reason we're having this discussion, because you, you kindly invited me to an event in um, back in January all about workplace well-being. Would you maybe share a little bit about that event and why you organized it and what you were hoping to achieve? Uh, so definitely. So as I said, I... Uh, I'm at Birkbeck, University of London, and earlier in the year, when we kicked off our our new term, and as part of that, we wanted to reflect a little bit about the the world of work and what was going on in practice, and particularly around the topic of of well-being. So we we hosted a a roundtable discussion with um, four external guest speakers, all practitioners in 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 and around this that idea of workplace well-being. So Richard, you. You know, you're, you're very kind to, to give up an evening of your time to share and reflect on your experiences. We also had um, a colleague of mine, Nicholas Stolwood, who comes from an um, organizational development and, and learning yeah, L&D background um, from, from the charity sector and also higher education. We had a, uh, another speaker, Aaron Percival, who comes from a, a health and safety background, and then Lucinda Sun, who, who was from the legal background. And yeah, so everyone was was bringing their experiences from uh, across their different organizations and sectors and the, the well-being issues that they hist- or traditionally faced, some of the contemporary challenges that they were dealing with with, with the pandemic, um, and also thinking about, well, how should we be supporting individuals and organizations when we want to think about improving workplace well-being? It was a really interesting uh, event, a 
purely from my perspective, it was interesting anyway, but it really sparked some some thoughts for me. As usual, as I was speaking aloud, the thoughts were occurring to me. But I think that the questions were really great ones about what what has well-being been like and what's the focus now and what are the trends that we're seeing as as practitioners who support individuals and organizations from a from a well-being perspective but one of the first things that really jumped out at me was that wow that well-being word is is doing a lot of heavy lifting and it can really mean different things in different environments what's your take on that do, do you see the same kind of flexibility when it comes to the word well-being I think so. I think well-being, and this works as a strength and also as a weakness, well-being can basically be whatever you want it to be. Um, and I think currently there is a big emphasis on, on well-being and therefore there are lots of organizations, practitioners who are in search of information and, and knowledge um, to try and fill this gap in terms of how we support individuals, how we might support teams uh, in, in, in the current context. Um, but equally, because it's so ill-defined, that makes it very challenging sometimes to have conversations because we both might be talking about well-being, but actually we might be focusing on very different, a very different idea. Um, you know, if, if just as a very simple example, if both you and I are, are working in an organization and we want to say, well, how do we improve well-being? Maybe I might be thinking employees need to be a little bit more resilient, but you might be thinking, actually, we need to be thinking about supporting teams and organizations. And therefore, when we look for solutions, we're actually coming up with very different ideas uh, as to how we should move forward over here. Agreed totally. And it's one of those things that it's it's worthwhile to to define or or at least have the discussion about what we mean by well-being uh before we get into solutions mode and and I think that's one of the challenges that I and other practitioners face is that when we speak with organizations they're already a few steps down the road in terms of they're looking at solutions with maybe without having clearly defined the challenge or the problem or whether there is a problem uh to begin with Definitely. And I think what's one of the things that struck me from this roundtable event that we were just talking about was that all our speakers came from very different backgrounds, from very different industries, but th there was so much commonality in terms of, of the themes that were being unpicked that actually there were similar challenges being faced about recognizing what actually well-being is and, and therefore how we should uh, intervene and, and trying to bring people on, on, on board as, as to yeah, what, what our common language is and, and what we understand well-being to be. And and that is also um, a bit of a challenge to get more specific without looking like you're trying to sort of say, get off my lawn to other professions and sort of say, I own this, when in fact, you know, we want to involve as many professionals in this as possible uh, appropriately and be really clear on what kind of interventions and what kind of support mechanisms work and how they work and for whom they work, um, rather than the ownership of well-being being a kind of a badge of convenience or it's your turn, Kevin, to look after well-being this year. Uh, why don't you organize some events? D definitely. And I think um, this idea of having a lawn or someone having a badge to, to lead the way on, on this well-being revolution, I think it's a bit flawed. Um, the reality is well-being is everyone's. Everyone has ownership over well-being. Um, and in whatever role we have, we have an influence over 
our working environment, the relationships that we have with our colleagues or with our suppliers or with our clients. And, and therefore, all that has a knock-on impact on the working conditions of the people around us. Um, one of the things I think is that people sometimes say, oh, I want to get into this well-being space. What sort of qualifications or what kind of jobs are there? And actually, there, there are not that many job titles which says well-being. I'm not, I mean, granted, there are some. But the reality is that you can take ownership, you can take responsibility for well-being from whatever role you might be. And what I thought from from the roundtable that we had was um, everyone actually had a different job title, had a different job role within mm. their organizations. Um, I mean, Richard, your background was as, a, as an independent psychologist in, in coaching, but we had someone from, from health and safety. We had someone from organizational development, and we had someone who wasn't in a actually a people role. Um, so on paper, none of them would be seen as having any ownership of well-being, but they all recognize that um, within their roles, they have a lot of influence over how well-being is understood and managed within their working environments. And I would add that I, from my perspective, I think everyone who has responsibility for other people in the workplace has uh, a responsibility for their well-being too, and not the event-based kind of well-being that we we talked about, but more importantly, I think, their influence on the system that can support or detract from employees' well-being, their their own behavior, maybe as a as a manager or a team leader, but also you know how they manage workload and how they onboard people and how they develop and promote people, and you know with an eye on people's well-being and the sustainability of how work is done. It doesn't need one person to be a well-being czar, if you like, but in fact saying we want it to permeate everything that we do. Definitely. I think you hit the nail on the on the head there that it's it's not a a few specific events or the domain of a few individuals. It's something that is sustainable. And if it's embedded within everyone's roles, within everyone's responsibilities, we have collective responsibility over it, then that's more likely to be something that is going to be lead to meaningful change or meaningful improvement um, that that yeah over a longer period of time will, will benefit most people, mm. and and not just the people that were able to attend an event or go to a class or, or something. And I think there's a inherent tension there. I, I experience anyway when um, an organizational stakeholder is particularly keen on a well-being event that on the one hand that's great that you're passionate about this. And on the other hand, that's wholly insufficient to make the kind of change that you're talking about, to have a well-being day or even a well-being week. What you're going to do is not going to significantly move the dial on any of these things. And yet at the same time, it, it is it is a way in to have those discussions and um, be try to be as evidence-based as possible and supportive and scientific and, and all of those things because my concern is is always what's the medium to longer-term impact on the reputation of this stuff? If people hear well-being and they see a one-off yoga session, then next year there could be a lot of cynicism about well-being week. You know what I mean? Definitely. And I think, um, you know, just picking on yoga or, or well-being interventions more generally, we know from, from research that often they're voluntary. Um, well, if you're forced to attend a well-being event, that in itself is problematic. Yeah. 
Um, but where it's voluntary, what we know is that typically it's um, those individuals who least need it who are most likely, or not least need it, who are not as not in as much need of it, who are most likely to attend. So that typically is individuals uh, who are who are young, who are middle or upper middle class uh, women, uh, and and who are white. Um, and if you look at all the social determinants of health, these are typically the the, the groups which tend to be um, slightly healthier than 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 others. Um, and and therefore, what that means is often when we put on well-being events, even when we mean well, and even though sometimes there is evidence that some of the things can work, the people who need it the most are actually not able to attend. Um, you know, I've done work, for example, in, in the National Health Service where nurses are saying, yes, we would like to attend this mindfulness event, but I haven't got time to go to the toilet. If I haven't mm. got time to go to the toilet, how am I going to have time to sit there for 30 minutes and and think about you know my, my thoughts and and to be present in terms of what uh, what is going on so you know we're we're um yeah we're, we're actually not offering something which we're not understanding the local context and and what then happens is as you said even when we mean well people become cynical and go well it's just something that's tokenistic we're not actually understanding the root cause of what is going on here and in a, in addition to the cynicism that can build up and in addition to the potentially superficial nature, and by that I mean it could be really enjoyable, but it's not going to make a big difference, we do have that diversity and inclusion question of who is being excluded from this, either intentionally or unintentionally. And when there's a focus on numbers at events, I'm much more interested to know what does the group look like rather than how many people are here. And for those people who aren't here, why is it? And the answer is frequently, they're really busy. And well, what could we do to enable them to be less busy, to participate in something that uh, we're, we're, we're going to do to try and improve their experience of work? You, you've flagged the fact that they're too busy to get involved in this. And um, I, I can only imagine the, the NHS contexts that you're talking about there. And um, I encounter it in, in, in industry regularly that those people that you would really like to get in the room, they, they, just, they just don't. They just don't come, and um, so you, you have a you've got an inbuilt bias there, don't you? Yeah, you do, and I think sometimes as an organization um, or as a manager, it's actually putting action to your words. Um, do you actually mean? Do we mean what we say? Because if we say well-being is important, and we generally believe that these well-being events or whatever well-being activities we're putting on are going to be beneficial for you, then actually we should be. Uh, doing what we can to free up capacity for those people who are most busy so that they can attend this well-being, um, you know, activities or interventions, uh, whatever that might be. But um, but if, if, if we're just putting them on for the sake of putting them on, then actually maybe we really, at some level, don't really care about how many people attend or why they attend or why they don't attend. We, we've done it. We've ticked the box. We've had the week and you know, we'll, we'll pop it on the blog or we'll talk about it on Twitter. We've had our well-being week and now back to normal. <laughs> and, and really that, that is not a, a sustainable approach because it's not thought through. You might as well have a home baking week, you know, and then say everyone bring in a cake each day. It's a themed week, but what is it doing 
for for people's well-being. And I do sound very cynical, uh, maybe more so today than usual, but I have had a lot of time to think about this since since our initial discussion and, and reflecting on where I see this being done really well and where it's less well. I would argue on, on behalf of the people not in this conversation that for the vast majority, this focus comes from a good place, but it's not particularly uh, implemented in a way that's joined up or, or thought through. I think you're completely right. The first thing I want to say, if I work in anywhere where every day or every week we get cake um, or baking, I'll be, I'll be quite happy. <laughs> but in the long run, that might not be good for my, uh, my physical health. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you're, yeah, you're, you're right. And I think it's sometimes easy, and I recognize that as, a, uh, as an academic, as a researcher, or even as, a, as an external person, it's, it, it can be easy for me to sit outside and criticize and say, you shouldn't be doing that. And there are a lot of people and lots of organizations who mean very well. Um, I think, if anything, what I see my role as is to facilitate a discussion to say, look, great that you're doing that, but you know, what can we do and how can we adjust what you're doing so that we can make it more inclusive, so that we can make it more sustainable, so that we can maybe be asking better questions, so that we can have better solutions and better interventions uh, to support well-being within the workplace. It's, it's an interesting topic in that... I think it applies to psychology a lot, but it's an interesting area whereby I wouldn't rewire my home because I thought I could or redo the plumbing because I thought, well, it can't be that hard. But when it comes to people and psychology, a lot of people feel, wow, what, how difficult can it be? You know, and, and there's a lower perceived barrier to entry to trying some of this thing in the workplace. And while we don't want it to seem like it's, unreachable and it's uh, erified and, and so special we also do need to say that not everything that we try works or not everything that is attempted will work and some expertise is is required and 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 knowledge is required to make this stuff really work well yeah no you're 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 right um just reflecting ironically had the electricians around today and <laughs> stuff which i wouldn't i wouldn't dare do um but but i think that's yeah, you're 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 right. So the, there's a lower barrier barrier to entry. Um, but having said that, I think sometimes we also over engineer things. Um, and whether that's because we we mean well or because we actually might not be as confident or as knowledgeable as as we think we we um, we we should be. And I think the danger sometimes is we try and do something for the sake of doing something without actually taking a moment to pause and say, well, what is actually the issue? Uh, what can we or what should we be doing and have we got the capacity, the resources, the skills, the experience to actually deliver on that? Um, and I think sometimes what also happens is then because individuals or organizations are unsure, it's very tempting to bring in someone else, um, an external expert, and I use expert in inverted quote commas, um, when 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 you know, saying that we, we should be doing this because this is the latest fad or all the other organizations are doing this specific well-being thing mm -hmm. uh, without actually taking a moment to think, well, do we actually need that? Um, and, and yeah, are we even asking the right questions? Because, you know, if we haven't got this problem, then we actually don't need to do this thing that all the other organizations appear to be doing. And just because all the other organizations appear to be doing it doesn't necessarily mean it's right or correct. You know, absolutely. And yet, that stuff is so attractive, isn't it, to, to decision makers and organizations to be seen to be doing something, 
is you know the order of the day in in many environments and actually um, doing what has been done before isn't it's seen as innovative you know and then this sort of a blind spot for for many people that that external comparison is very attractive especially if there's some nice case studies to to support it maybe if we could have a look at some of the um recommendations that we might make. So if someone's listening to this and they work in, in, in HR or they have been given responsibility for the well-being topic, that maybe we could uh, add something positive to this so that when people do press stop, they feel um, that I haven't hectored them <laughs> and they've got something they could, uh, they could do as a result of this. So I, I, we discussed it at the event and I think you and I would both come from the the same uh, position on this, that actually we need to remember to focus on the core building blocks of well-being rather than faddish interventions. And, and those building blocks are the, the essentials of good work, how are jobs designed, how are roles designed, and how is workload distributed? Uh, are managers equipped with the skills they need to to manage and look after people? Is, is change managed well? Do people know what they're responsible for? And do they have sufficient flexibility in their role to do it in a way that's sustainable? That stuff, those factors, I should say, that stuff, they, you know, we've known about their importance for so long that I think they're almost forgotten or they're implied. And yet, if we want to focus on well-being, we need to be doing something super interesting and new. What's your view on those kind of essentials? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and those essentials are, are the building blocks. Um, if we look from the research evidence point of view, um, as as well, in terms of predictors of of poor well-being in the workplace, and if you use burnout as an example, um, the research is quite clear that. Um, these workplace factors, so things like job design, like workload, control, autonomy, are far stronger predictors of burnout in the workplace than individual factors like personality or even coping or or mental resilience. So, you know, we're, and, and that goes back to recognizing the importance of the context and the environment that someone is, is situated within because it's, of course, yes, important to... Um, encourage and, and um, support individuals to be to be able to be better able to cope in the environments that they're in but if the environments are challenging and difficult then actually it's not a very fair environment for that specific person and if we know from research that those basic building blocks are a far more important predictor then why do we not try and address that i think sometimes it's partially we we haven't realized that but also uh, at times, it's it's not seeing that these basic building blocks, good management skills, how we address workload, how conflict is managed in the workplace, uh, is not seen as part of well-being. It's actually seen as performance, or mm. or even sometimes uh, in conflict with performance in the workplace. Absolutely, I I, I think we're back to the the what hat am I wearing uh, theme that, well, someone else is responsible for manager development and someone else is responsible for change and someone else is responsible for introducing flexible working or something. And, you know, the, the, this speaks to my perspective, which would be if, a, if an organization really values well-being, then it's part of the fabric of everything that's done. 
and that when jobs are designed, when roles are reviewed, not only through the lens of efficiency and resourcing effectively, but also is this good human work? You know, can people thrive while doing this job? And when we're promoting people, are we promoting people who simultaneously can bring value and bring competence, but also nurture well-being? Or do we promote people who actively detract from others' well-being, but in the short term drive profit, performance, those other things that we're particularly interested in? I think you're absolutely right. We don't have that shared instant connection between these things and employee well-being when they are the most powerful drivers of that and they really do need that attention. Yeah, and and I think um, this this conflict between performance and, and well-being, I think when the chips are down, then we, we see what, what managers really emphasize what's important to them. Uh, you know, would, would a manager or, or an organization be willing to push back on a client or to ask for a delay um, in delivering something just because they say, you know, we need to free up capacity for our, our staff, for our colleagues, so that um, they can better manage the situation that, that they're in? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes about doing it in that way, sometimes about managing expectations. I mean, we there, there are a number of um, organizations who run call centers and, and, and across this pandemic, staff have been working from home and when you ring them they say you know our staff are working from home so you might hear children in the background or pets and all sorts of stuff and and i think it's just setting expectations so that customers know actually the people the person on the other side of the phone is a a person and b is also trying to work from home during a pandemic so i know i it's probably not appropriate for me to get too upset if there is a child screaming in the background um so it's about managing those expectations as well uh, absolutely. I've heard some good examples as well over the last year where some of the really simple things have been emphasized by organizations like ensuring that there are no meetings scheduled outside of certain times, ensuring that there's several hours where no meetings can happen, you know, and by that I mean kind of Zoom online meetings, um, and ensuring that events don't take place during uh, lunch times, so that breaks are encouraged, so that meeting-free time is encouraged. And there's no well-being program kicked off there. It's just sensible, let's make sure that people are okay while they're in this difficult situation. Let's not overload people with meetings because we're seeing it happen already. Certainly, I think when we um, going back to the point of not trying, well, overcomplicating things, not overcomplicating things. That the reality is often when it comes to well-being, it can be quite simple things, and simple things can be quite powerful, both in terms of a symbolic gesture, but actually making a big change. If you know that you've got colleagues who are struggling, sometimes just saying, "Do you know what that meeting that we've got next week or whatever that is? Actually, let's just cancel it because then that means you get an hour or you get an afternoon back." that you can then use to catch up on other things that that you need to be doing. And particularly when people are struggling with workload, it's looking at, well, how do we free up capacity? What is not necessary for us to be doing right now um, that we could either get rid of altogether or in some situations, actually, maybe it doesn't need to be done to the same standards as it it needed to in the past. Um, Are these internal standards just for us? 
And, you know, can we co potentially compromise on this um, for this period of time, just again, to free up capacity and reduce the pressure and expectations that we're, we're placing on colleagues? And it's priorities, isn't it? Can we, can we prioritize well-being and sustainability for a period rather than working as if nothing strange is happening right now and just um, assume we'll, we'll all get through it in, in one piece? And that's simple yet powerful. I, I really like that perspective because it, it doesn't need to be hugely disruptive or even badged. It, it's just going back to the essentials and saying, how can we uh, nudge some of these things in a positive direction and illustrate Yep, it's everyone's responsibility to varying degrees and well-being can be improved through some very simple, um, potentially even small changes, but they can have that big impact. I really like that perspective. And I'd encourage people who are listening that maybe they've got ideas about what they could do to maybe look at some of those essentials first and say, before we kick off this big program of events, have we got you know, jobs that are doable by a single person? Have we got flexibility that people need? And this brings me to a, a, another point that I think is really important. Ask people what they need. Don't tell them, we're doing this for your well-being. Ask them, what could help you uh, either during this difficult period of enforced working from home and lockdown or putting a pandemic to one side? What do you need to thrive here? Rather than tell you there's a lunchtime class what could what could make the difference for you and and then there again we often see the small things that make the big difference like flexibility of finishing time to look after the school run or ensuring that they're able to have a slightly different lunch time to be able to take care of a personal responsibility or just giving them the explicit rather than implicit permission that step away from your desk, go for a walk, get some fresh air. You know, let's just be honest that that's really important as well. But ask, I would argue, rather than just implement from the top down. It was literally, I just wrote that down as my uh, my next point that I was going to pick up on, but you've literally took, taken the words out of my <laughs> mouth. And, and, and often that is the case. It's, you know, yeah, speak to the people around you because firstly, our colleagues, A, know what they're, what the issues are and what the challenges are. Um, what often they don't need is someone outside to come in and say, do you know what, Richard, your problem is this. And actually they might not fully understand the local context. And then on the back of that, they, they often have solutions um, on how things can or should be done differently. Sometimes, yes, they can be quite complicated, but sometimes they can be very simple things as exactly as you've just described. And, you know, in some situations, some teams might want more activities, whether that is social activities like a team afternoon tea or cocktail making session or another Zoom quiz. Um, or in some settings, it might be actually we want less of that. Um, but, you know, mm. we, you're not going to know unless you ask. And, and that goes back to having just open communication. And I think that's one of the key building blocks of, of uh, any well-being strategy is actually understanding your local context. What, what are the issues? What do people want? What do people need? And that helps us avoid the, well, if I haven't got time to go to the bathroom, I, I'm hardly going to have time to come to your briefing or your relaxation session or, or whatever that is. And, and that links with another point I, I thought was important to bring up in this conversation, which is that of psychological safety. You know, if people feel that they can raise sticky topics or they can point out risks or issues or failings in the system, so that they can discuss them, then decision makers 
can be more likely to find out about them. And if they're able to nurture that psychological safety and focus on the issues rather than the people who raise them, then I think organizations can learn a lot more about the small things that could make that big difference rather than people, ex uh, your average employee, experiencing a sense of dread or fear and just keeping it to themselves. Yeah, and I think with uh, lots of people are working remotely, lots of people are on, on furlough as well, um, struggling with just working environments and, and having that sense of safety is just paramount um, of, of knowing where they stand, um, of knowing that they can communicate with their colleagues or with their, with their, with their managers. And, and I think as if you're in a management position or if you're in HR um, or any other sort of people function, I think how we respond uh, when we invite feedback or even when we don't invite feedback is is important and the, the reality is that when we deal with uncertainty the first thing is we have to acknowledge this uncertainty whether that is a global pandemic or something that much more local like you know we might be going through an organizational restructuring or, or a merger we might have high sickness absence or turnover rates and it's acknowledging the uncertainty to say that actually as a manager or as an organization we're not quite sure what's going to happen but because of that, that makes your role in giving us feedback even more important. And we may not always be able, or we often may even sometimes not be able to, to act on it. But what we want to then do is respond and say, look, we know you in an ideal world, we could hire more staff, but that's just not feasible in the context that we're in right now. But, you know, maybe there's different ways that we can do things or maybe there's a way that we can restructure teams or change job roles to to try and increase capacity somehow. Um, but I think making sure that people feel heard um, is is important because there's also a danger that when we ask for feedback, um, we open communication, and if we don't respond accordingly, people are just going to see it as it's a tick box exercise. It's the annual staff mm. survey, which just goes into a spreadsheet somewhere, and we get some nice statistics, and and then that's it. But what really is the point? Um, or people just become cynical and go, "Well, this is a waste of waste of my time to have to engage in this when actually I can be better off doing something else." So it's a key point, then, isn't it? Both to ask people what they feel they need, and then be open and brave enough to respond to that uh, in, a, in an authentic way. Either, yes, that's possible, or no, that's not possible right now, but we'll we'll try it in the future because of the context we're yes. in. But just like the surveys, we need to, we need to let people know what we're going to do. Much easier said than done um, in, in practice, and in particular where things are very uncertain, where, where, where people crave that certainty. Uh, it can be very difficult to provide assurances because also what you don't want to do is to make promises that you can't keep because that's uh, a, a quick way in terms of breaking trust and you know that psychological contract of safety that um, an, an individual employee might feel and it's it's so difficult to build up trust in the workplace but it's so quick for uh, to to basically break it and and to 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 lose that so um, if anything I think acknowledging uncertainty and say do you know what? I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, that that honesty and authenticity is 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 even more important. It really is, and you know, we we touched on this at the very outset. But in terms of recommendations, uh, I I'd like to come back to the you know the evidence based approach. You know, um, getting some clarity on. 
the presence or otherwise of a problem and then being clear on the problem you're trying to solve. And then not only look for the evidence among the the potential solutions, but try and evaluate how well things are working for different people in different ways and not assuming that everything you badge as well-being is, is going to have the intended impact. Yeah, I think one thing which I like uh, to flag um, is the health and safety executive have actually put together a really neat set of resources called the management standards, um, where they've reviewed the corresponding research evidence and, and basically identified six of these key building blocks that we, we talked about earlier on. Um, they talk about how demanding a job is, how change is being managed within an organization, how clear someone's role is, the support that they get, um, uh, 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 the quality of the relationships that they have in the workplace and how much control and influence they have um, in, in the workplace as well. And so there are questionnaires on this. There are uh, tools in terms of how you might want to measure and understand this. So I think for anyone who is looking to have a better understanding of how we can yeah, what the what the building blocks are in their local organization or context, I think that's a very um, good place to start off with as well. And there are also some neat resources in terms of how you might want to approach interventions. Um, and crucially, as, as we were speaking about earlier, Richard, it's well-being is not an event. It's not something that gets done and, you know, you put a folder together and say, that's it, we've got our policy, we've got our well-being week or our occupational health providers and, and, and so forth, and, and that's it. But actually recognizing that well-being is a, is a continual process because things change. The, hmm. the, the economy changes, our organization changes, our workforce changes as well. So the well-being needs will also change. So we continually need to evolve. Uh, and that means regularly assessing what is going on. And, and I think to understand a specific local context, having... Yeah, talking to the people, as we said, asking is important. And whether that's something as formal as a risk assessment or as informal as conversations, um, that's important as well. Mm. So we could kind of summarize this is get the basics right and, and look at those basics. And I would agree the, the health and safety executives resources, free resources are phenomenal. So I'll put a link to those in the show notes. But look at those, start with those, emphasize those if you're trying to make it um, a, a, a really good place and a healthy place to work. And then we've got employee voice, communication, psychological safety, you know, make sure those conversations are, are happening and maybe cast a critical eye over the recommended interventions and and view your context as being somewhere where maybe that's not demonstrated. And maybe let's let's look at how that works or the extent to which it works here so we can be more data-driven, we can be more evidence-based so that we know what we can repeat, how we can improve, and so on. So some, some sort of general uh, points of advice uh, for, for listeners. Bearing in mind, we don't know who's listening <laughs> and what your context in, is, but, but maybe some good starting points there. And I know this is a really challenging question for you, Kevin, but if there was one thing you really wanted organizations to understand about employee well-being, what, what would it be? Well, I think um, I kind of alluded to it earlier on. I think the one thing that I would like to say is that um, an individual's well-being is, is the product of the context that they're in. So any well-being approach needs to embody and recognize that context. So a well-being intervention needs to be comprehensive, targeting 
the individual, supporting the individual, but also addressing the, the workplace environment that they are situated within. Fantastic. And maybe one, one simple thing that listeners could do as a result of, of hearing us today. I think what I would say is reflect uh, on what your role is um, and whether you want to do this as an individual or as a team leader or as senior management. And that is to think, well, what is one change that I can do in my working environment or we can do in our team or I can do for my team that will um, create a better working environment for everyone within it? And that might be as simple as, uh, yeah, dropping a meeting um, or putting on a meeting on a specific topic to catch up with someone to build that social relationship as well. So again, it will vary from context to context, but think about, you know, what small, what is one small change that you could perhaps do? And you might have to ask someone about what that might be uh, and then try and follow through on that. Fantastic. Kevin, we've, 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 um, Burn through our time really quickly, which is always always the way when we we talk about something really interesting, and and I think we're we're both very very passionate about this topic. I'm I'm going to share these resources that we've mentioned in passing in the show notes, and uh, I'll um I'll link to your online profile. But where would be the best place for listeners to find out more about you? Uh, so certainly, I'm always happy to get in contact with anyone. Um, you know, if you look me up on the Birkbeck staff pages, you you find my profile there and my email address is on there, k.teoh at bbk.ac.uk or you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Kevin T-R-H. Um, no, sorry, that's the wrong handle, uh, at Kevin T-O-R-H. Uh, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Yeah. Um, is a brave man giving out his email address on a podcast. <laughs> I might regret <laughs> Um, I'm always happy to have conversations. I think it'd be great if, you know, if, if listeners have a, a question that they think uh, around well-being, they think Kevin could give them a really good expert view on it. I'd encourage people to get in touch and, and as ever get in touch with us at, at the podcast with your questions, but also your examples of what you're doing locally. If you think you've got some great ideas and things that are working well in your context, we'd love to, to hear from you. You can send us a message on Twitter at mypocketpsych or send us a longer message on the contact form worklifepsych.com slash contact. Kevin, a big thank you to you for taking time at the end of a, a busy day to have another chat, um, but it's been really, really great to have you on. So thank you very much. No, thank you for the invite. And I enjoy these conversations. They're very energizing. So um, I appreciate the invite. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.